Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 2nd of February with me, Ian Welsh. I recently had a fascinating conversation with Jonathan Schuldenfry, who's Managing Director of the Risk and Financial Advisory Practice at Deloitte. We talked about carbon projects and how business can best use the opportunities presented by regulated and voluntary carbon markets. That's all to come. First though, here is Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson with some sustainable business news. An extensive new economic study on global food systems has found that transitioning to a sustainable model could yield annual benefits of up to $10 trillion, or £7.9 trillion, improve human health and mitigate the climate crisis. The study, by the Food System Economics Commission and academic partners, notes that current food systems are burdened by hidden environmental and medical costs, which undermine future value in favour of immediate profits. The report estimates that the hidden costs of food, including climate change, nutrition and natural resources, and human health, comes to around $15 trillion. Food systems contribute to a third of global greenhouse emissions, leading to a projected 2.7 degrees warming by 2100. The study proposes redirecting subsidies towards smallholders using sustainable farming techniques, changing diets, and investing in emissions-cutting technologies. This transformation could also eradicate undernutrition by 2050, prevent 174 million premature deaths and halve nitrogen runoffs. The estimated cost of the shift ranges from 0.2% to 0.4% of global GDP per year. IKEA has achieved a noteworthy environmental milestone by successfully decoupling its emissions from its financial growth, demonstrating a 24.3% reduction in its climate footprint compared to its 2016 baseline, while simultaneously experiencing a substantial 30.9% increase in revenue. The annual summary and sustainability report for the financial year of 2023, released by the Inca Group, IKEA's largest retailer, attributes the reduction in climate footprint to the implementation of carbon-saving initiatives, including the adoption of electric vehicles, increased use of renewable electricity, and enhanced energy efficiency measures. IKEA has committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050, with a 90% reduction in absolute emissions by 2030, with further aims to become a fully circular business by the same year. Planet Tracker has released a report examining the water-related risk disclosures of nearly 30 major apparel brands, revealing that only half of them currently disclose these risks through the CDP. The report categorizes the companies into luxury, non-luxury, and retail-focused entities, highlighting disparities in disclosure levels among different types, with non-luxury brands showing the highest level at 69%, followed by luxury brands at 29%, and retail-focused entities lagging significantly at 2%. Out of nearly 4,000 analysed documents, only 10% included water-related disclosures. The report emphasises the need for financial institutions to consider water risk in their investment decisions, urging companies to disclose water use and risks through standardised frameworks like the CDP. Ireland has launched a deposit return scheme for plastic drinks bottles and aluminium cans, making it the 41st nation globally and the 15th in Europe to introduce such a system. Under the deposit return scheme, or the DRS, consumers will be able to return empty containers at vending machines across the country in exchange for tokens, which then offer discounts on their supermarket purchases. The move is expected to significantly reduce litter and landfill waste, with a particular focus on cutting the 5 million single-use containers consumed daily in Ireland. 
the DRS is anticipated to enhance Ireland's environmental efforts and encourage the UK to expedite its own scheme, planned currently for October 2025. There's pressure for alignment between the two nation systems considering their shared border and common consumer brands. Next up is a conversation I had recently with Managing Director in the Risk and Financial Advisory Practice at Deloitte, Jonathan Schuldenfrey. So we're going to talk a little bit about the carbon markets and how they're impacting corporate routes to net zero. Jonathan, I think it's fair to say that most companies now accept that the carbon markets will eventually be part of their decarbonisation process, but engaging can seem a bit daunting to many. Perhaps you could outline the difference between the voluntary and the regulated carbon markets and the roles that they play. The regulated carbon market is dictated through, obviously, regulations. Those regulations are really stemming in the ARB in the U.S., That is dictated by California primarily. And then there are several states that anchor off of the ARB. The ARB is really a cap and trade type process where they provide an envelope and they also create an auction for companies and regulated entities in order to manage their operations below a certain emissions threshold. If they are expected to exceed that threshold, then they would need to purchase more credits in order to ultimately be compliant with the rules that they are subject to. That's pretty much the regulated market at the highest level. The US, it has an agreement with Quebec, which is a province in Canada. So they are also following the same type of rule set that California sets out through the ARB. The ARB is interesting because it also requires extremely high quality projects for the credits that support it. And it has a floor to price where it is an inflationary rate plus a 5% growth on price so that the price is always going to be increasing over time. And therefore, it limits the volatility of that market. That's pretty much the regulated market in like a a short summary. The voluntary market is exactly as it sounds. It's, It's a voluntary market where organizations can access certain projects. Those projects have a varying degree of quality. Those projects have principles behind them. Those principles are through additionality, through permanence. Those are key principles for decent quality projects in terms of but for this activity would have an organization performed this task. And then the second is how long is this project going to last for overall? And if there's any risk to that, that ultimately determines and challenges the quality. There are a couple standard setting bodies that apply rule sets to projects to help organizations understand what those principles are. That would be uh, Gold Standard and Vera are probably the most prominent voluntary method setting organizations that outline different frameworks for different sectors, different projects, different activities that are pretty prescriptive and detailed. And then they go in and perform some level of diligence and verification for those projects in order to put them on their registries. And then there's the idea of double counting and avoiding any double counting as well. These organizations that are registering these projects do their best to ensure that there is no double count for these projects overall. The market price is really set by demand. 
supply and demand. So natural economic factors that are promoted through nascent marketplace opportunities where there are some digital registries that allow for participants to locally access certain projects that might be a benefit to them from a voluntary perspective. The U.S. voluntary market has been lagging based on global observations. They really promote a company's vision for how they're going to provide a positive impact on this world, but they're not necessarily using it as a key tool in their net zero pathway overall. They're more onesie twosie type projects for now, and they're not necessarily used as a mechanism overall. I think maybe one of the factors that challenge a company from adopting the voluntary market is the SBTI limitations. That's the science-based target initiative. Uh, if a organization wants to be a SBTI compliant and verified target company, they need to limit the amount of voluntary carbon projects that they ultimately acquire. And that tool is limited based on the framework that's laid out. And there's a lot of debate whether that's the right thing or not. I don't know if I have a, a strong opinion yet on that. It's just that when we look at the SBTI as the gold standard for target setting, there are clear lines and limitations that preclude companies from using carbon markets as a primary tool overall. Uh, just a couple of definitions, very important. This is an area filled with acronyms, ARB. Just remind us what ARB is, please. The ARB is the Air Resources Board that's set forth through California. Okay, and then what do we mean by cap and trade? Cap and trade is typically a mechanism where the Air Resources Board has ascribed a certain envelope of emissions, so carbon tons, to a particular entity, and they're capped that limitation to an organization is defined as a cap. The trade is whether or not you are exceeding that cap or below that cap. And therefore, there may be room to potentially auction off the amount that has been allocated to an organization but don't need it. And there's an auction to organizations that have exceeded that cap and need to acquire it. Let's think a bit about the markets and how they're evolving then. What are the changes that you're seeing in regulated and the voluntary carbon markets right now? In regulated, I don't know if I see any major changes. There's more states in the US that are adopting or considering the adoption of regulated markets. One of the key qualities of a regulated market is the appeal of the floor pricing and the floor pricing requiring organizations to contribute higher quality projects because those prices are going to be at a premium versus voluntary markets at this point in time. In terms of the voluntary market, there's been some challenges in the adoption of the voluntary market. And I guess the evolution of the markets in the US specifically, which is where I operate, has been in the form of carbon insets rather than carbon offsets. And I think there's a clear distinction there where the carbon offset is project developers outside of any entity developing a carbon sink or carbon removal project or carbon reduction project that is dislocated or disconnected from the operations of a company. And therefore, the company needs to go out in the marketplace and acquire that project to offset the emissions in their operations. What I'm actually seeing is that organizations are taking those methodologies 
and they're looking at their own value chains and they are actually negotiating with counterparties in their own value chains using those methodologies and getting compensated for those activities within the contracts and the actually delivery of products and services across that value chain. In the US, the Inflation Reduction Act is incentivizing organizations to receive monetary benefits to execute on certain projects as long as they conform to certain rules and regulations, and they're specific to a particular activity, they are getting monetary compensation from a counterparty in order to engage in that because there's a perception that a consumer will acquire that product or service at a premium because it's lower emissions. That's essentially how I'm seeing the markets evolve in the US. I think once there's saturation in the inset market, the offset market will start to take off. Let's think a bit more about the volatile carbon markets then. What do you look for? What constitutes a good project? I think it's really conforming to the principles of additionality, permanence, and making sure that it's not double counted. Is this a unique project that a company would not have conformed to? Does it conform to the methodologies of a Vera or a gold standard or a regulated methodology? Those are the level sets for me and for other practitioners to see how closely that project aligns with those methodologies. Even though the market is fragmented from a standard setting perspective, I think that there are certain core principles that all of them conform to. And if they adhere closely to those standards, I think that is probably the definition of a high quality project overall. And then in terms of the co-benefits, table stakes are, does the project conform to certain standards that have been outlined by these uh, voluntary standard setters like a Vera and a gold standard or the regulated market one? And then two, how many co-benefits are in addition to that? The United Nations has set out SDGs. Those SDGs are additional standards that are valued and they're more qualitative than quantitative. So there's definitely a quantitative angle to the standards overall, where an organization that is looking to offset certain carbons would engage in the quantification of how many tons of carbon is expected to be reduced over a certain amount of time. The co-benefits for a project may just be how much biodiversity does it support. Some areas of biodiversity can be quantified, whereas others cannot. And therefore, they can communicate those co-benefits in the form of how closely they perceive them to align to SDGs. And therefore, there might be a premium to those particular projects as a result of aligning closely to those co-benefits. And there's methodologies out there, and there's an evolution through the task force for nature, where they are beginning to perform quantifications for biodiversity and those co-benefits overall. So I think it's going to be an evolution as well on quote-unquote quality. Could you start laying the difference in between projects that have involved carbon reduction and projects that involve carbon removal? Carbon reduction is really around how to make a process, like a manufacturing process, where you're performing that task, but you're doing it with lower emissions. It's a delta to an existing process where if you're emitting 100 tons of carbon, manufacturing a widget, and then you can perform that same task 
for 50 tons of carbon for that same widget and that same level of productivity, that is a carbon reduction. Whereas carbon removal is removing 100% of carbon from a process or source materials that are input into your process. So it could be either carbon removals are harder to come by because they require advanced technologies or greater resources to do a complete offset where carbon is completely removed from the atmosphere as a result of impacting the productivity and the source materials of particular exercise or activity. In terms of carbon reduction projects, I guess the deforestation projects that have been talked about significantly, particularly in the last 12 months, so those are carbon reduction projects. I'm thinking of those projects where companies buy credits to allow communities not to deforest their lands. Oh, actually, the forestry projects are carbon removal. The amount of carbon that is absorbed by soil, by trees, by the hectare of vegetation is considered a carbon sink. A carbon sink is actually removing carbon from the atmosphere, and therefore the high-quality forestry projects are actually considered carbon removal projects. A carbon reduction project is really around performing the same task but differently. So if you think about putting building controls on your building where they have automated lights that are turning off or replacing your light bulbs from incandescent to LED would be a carbon reduction. Changing out your boiler, your HVAC system in a building would also be considered a carbon reduction. Those are energy qualifiers or assets that are considered to deliver the same productivity for the same task, but more efficiently are considered the carbon reduction projects whereas the carbon removal are predominantly the forestry. I think forestry is 65% of carbon removal projects, if not greater. What sort of safeguards should people be looking for then? Is it simply just ensuring that projects are certified by the likes of VERA and Gold Standard? That's a definitely a great start. I think there's a couple things. They should obviously look at leaders in the marketplace like a VERA and a gold standard in terms of methodologies, they should look at what are the guidelines for a regulated market. There's also verification tools and services that would also benefit organizations. There's another acronym, MRV. The V in the MRV is for verification. Verification can be through satellite and digital assets where there's satellite technology that can see one, the boundary conditions for the project. I've actually spoken to developers who have been misinformed about the boundaries for the projects, and therefore their projects were disqualified as a result of a misunderstanding on those boundaries. So if they're able to, one, I guess, check with local governments as to what the boundaries of those projects are, to engage with technology providers that can monitor set from a satellite perspective. And then there are on-the-ground verification services that can actually go onto the ground and do tree counting and do land surveys. So I would recommend that at a minimum that institutions and companies that are looking to ultimately engage in these projects should ultimately engage in some level of verification in addition to a bit of paper diligence on the methodologies that are used to ultimately qualify that project. 
Let's think on the flip side then. What are the sorts of projects that you'd recommend companies avoid? What are kind of the red flags to look for when there's a project that is one that's best left alone? The market's really fragmented right now. And like I do encourage organizations to support and promote these project developers because they are doing good in this world. I would say that there are jurisdictions that may have challenging rules and laws that organizations should get familiar with. I think it's really performing diligence around the jurisdictions that are trying to support there may be double counting. There may be practices that are not conforming to leading practice. And by being able to get more informed as to what is good, what is allowable in a particular jurisdiction, what are the boundaries that are set by those jurisdictions, what are the practices that those jurisdictions are engaging in, who's a leader in that space, I think are all ways for organizations to at least perform some high-level diligence, just like any asset acquisition. I think they should go through a, an external process to truly understand what good is. And double counting, of course, means that more than one entity is counting the carbon reduction on their balance sheet. Exactly. How do you see carbon markets evolving over the perhaps short, medium and long term? And how do you think companies can best take advantage of the opportunities that these present? I actually feel that there are mechanisms that are anchoring on the regulated market. If we were to look at the regulated market, and the auctions of those regulated markets. So how does a company get access that is not necessarily allocated an envelope to ultimately emit to, and that there's the surplus of carbon credits that are auctioned off? Those are considered some of the highest quality credits or offsets. There are organizations out there that are actually acquiring those credits in the market, and they are then ring-fencing them and then incentivizing innovation in order to develop carbon removal projects that would ultimately deliver the same carbon reduction or removal that they purchase in that auction. Once that carbon removal technology is proven, they can then release the carbon credits that they had originally purchased. I thought that that's a fascinating mechanism that is being developed by leaders in this space and I found really innovative and impressive way to leverage and get access to the regulated markets overall. And then I think that the inset market in the U.S. particularly is also going to drive market overall. And the reason I say that is a lot of organizations are looking to benefit directly from carbon reduction or carbon removal activities themselves conforming to methodologies that are dictated or outlined by voluntary market standards, but they're being compensated by a counterparty in their own value chain. I think once that market saturates, similarly to the regulated market, there's going to be a surplus of activities that will be available in the offset market of higher quality because there is less demand internal to the value chain, which will keep each other accountable for one, practicing leading standards, not double counting their practices because they have transparency and strong relationships, and there will be a more visibility into the marketplace, allowing for a larger supply 
of carbon removal and carbon reduction projects of higher quality that will be available and hopefully in jurisdictions that align with the jurisdictions in which other companies operate that are still challenged to create or identify or source their own carbon reduction and removal projects to offset their own balance sheets. Thank you. It is certainly is a fascinating area, one that's undoubtedly going to grow in the coming years as businesses, as economies decarbonise. But Jonathan Schoenfrey from Deloitte, thanks very much indeed for leading us by the hand through the carbon markets. Thanks, Ian. Look out for the next in our Factory Voices interviews, just published on the Innovation Forum website, and a Q&A looking at the potential impact of regenerative agriculture for the apparel sector. That's it for now, though. I've been Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.